1: Welcome to today's forum. I'm Joe Neal. I'll be your moderator today. I edit a team of health and health policy reporters at NPR in Washington. Uh, Today's webcast is part of a collaboration between NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, Our event today is being live streamed both on the forum website and on npr.org. We've assembled a very distinguished panel here. Uh, Let's get started. Let me make some introductions. To my immediate right is Robert Blinden. Bob is a professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard Chan School and the Harvard Kennedy School. Benjamin Summers is assistant professor of health policy and economics at the Harvard Chan School. Catherine Hempstead is a senior advisor at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And Jackie Jenkins Scott is president of Wheelock College here in Boston. She's a former president and CEO of the historic Dimmock Community Health Center in Roxbury, Massachusetts. Now, just a little bit more about the format of today's program. We'll take questions toward the end of the webcast. And if you do have questions, you can email them to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. That's the forum, one word. At, Harvard, at hsph.harvard.edu. There's also a live discussion going on now at the forum website. So let me get going with today's program by giving you a little bit of background. Over the past several years, NPR and teams at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and at the Harvard Chan School have been regularly conducting polls looking at people's experiences with healthcare and the healthcare system. Um, in a recent series of polls, we wanted to find out what, if anything, had changed in the two, first two years of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and Bob, uh, you've been particularly interested in the findings we got from these polls about people with lower incomes. So I'll turn to you now uh, so you can tell us more about that.
2: Uh, so, uh, Bob London. Uh, this is a period that was one of the biggest changes since Medicare was enacted in 1965. The aim uh, was to make care much more widely available to people of every single background. And the question when we looked at the results was if you were low income in America, uh, things did improve, and Ben's going to talk about that. But uh, it, did we suddenly end the gap? between people who are lower income in communities and, and everybody else. And what I'll show you very quickly is, yes, things did get better, but the gap is really quite striking uh, for that. And our finding is that insurance alone does not improve the lives uh, completely of, of people who live in low-income communities. So if we get have slide one. Uh, so, the, uh, this is over the last two years. Was there a time you couldn't get the needed health care? And as you can see, uh, that it's 12% for all other incomes and 21% if you're low income. Uh, next slide. And low income is less than
1: $25,000. Right. Household or individual?
2: Uh, household. Household, right. Uh, and so, uh, as many studies have reported, Uh, there actually was an increase in use of emergency rooms across the United States. All of us thought, well, finally you get a card, you get ability to get out, and you don't go there. In fact, they did. But an important finding, so low-income people did before and now use emergency rooms more. But there's a somewhat misperception, and we'll show you in a second, that they go there because that's sort of a habit of where it is. And almost half, 48% of low-income people said this. I went there because I can't find any other place, at the hour, the location, uh, where I am to go. And I'll show you in a minute, this is not like this is the great place to go. Uh, They know right away. Uh, Next slide. Uh, so, uh, uh, this is uh, the rating of the care you get. Uh, so, the thing is absolutely striking. So, we're talking about people are going to emergency rooms, and 39% of the low income say the care I'm getting is fair or poor. And that's versus uh, 21% of everyone else. So people are not selecting this because this is the high end place that they get care. They are really trapped into using a set of services. And I don't think people realize that the use of that uh, emergency room is not just sort of a style we got used to. They're going there for one reason, but it's not a satisfactory end. In the survey, we asked uh, people to rate every site of care they got. Emergency rooms ranked at the bottom. There's nothing else a low-income person has contact with that ranked as low as care for an emergency room. But the numbers grew. The numbers grew because there's not a system there for people to go as alternative. Next slide.
1: And some of the other things we looked at were urgent
2: care and? Uh, uh, Everything from mini clinics uh, to your own physician, the hospitalization, whatever is available to people, it ranks higher. Uh, than use for emergency rooms. So it's just very important to find out from their own perceptions. I'm not going there because this is the uh, top place I can go. I just don't have alternatives. Uh, Next slide. We asked one hypothetical question, which uh, is, in your state, if you were really seriously ill, could you, in this new world, get the best treatment that's available? And so, as you could see, uh, 28% of low-income people said, absolutely not. I cannot get the best care in my state, uh, versus 15% of everybody else. So in this new world where we wiped out all the uh, changes and everything else, people don't think uh, that, for a lot of them, it opened up Uh, the choices that that you think they did. Uh, Now, Ben worked with us, and we sort of looked at the role of insurance. And each of these gaps is narrowed by 20 or 30% if you had insurance. But they don't go away, and they're very, very large. So most of the problems we found are structural issues that actually go on in people's communities. Insurance alone, out of this study, did not resolve many of the problems that we've talked about. That's sort of the takeaway uh, of looking at this picture.
1: We have a clip now uh, showing that how having insurance can improve people's lives uh, despite structural issues. Uh, The clip tells us the story of a family in Montana uh, and some of the choices they actually had to make once the ACA started and they were able to get some help with their insurance. Uh, The video comes to us from the Robert Wood Johnson
3: Foundation. I think Max is a little comedian lexi is very kind
4: she's a smart kid too
3: the kids are awesome it was hard to have a family with kids and not being able to afford health insurance
4: i I shopped around for health insurance and you know when i saw how much it was it was just it was too much
3: what they were asking for was like asking for a second rent for us and it just wasn't
5: possible
3: my dad said it's really time that you guys have health insurance he kept saying you need to do this as a family
4: when I went online I got to look at how much insurance was going to cost us and it was a lot more reasonable than what we would looked at previously
3: and the coverage that we were getting was awesome getting insurance was part of being good parents.
4: For people that say they can't afford insurance, I'd tell them that we were in the same boat. But then I, I checked it out online and, you know, I looked at the subsidy that you can get, you know, depending on your income, and that can really help.
3: Because of the financial help, we can't afford health insurance.
4: Now that we have health insurance, we can move towards other goals, like buying a house or having another baby
3: insurance is so important for a family to have because things happen when i was able to go to the doctor now with the insurance card i felt really secure and relieved that we could do this as a family and that we're going to be there for our children
1: now ben uh, we saw in that video how having health insurance uh, can make things better and can make a difference you study this area extensively tell us more about what your research says
6: well, uh, in some some of the work that, that I've worked uh, pr- uh, participated in, as, long, as well as uh, several other researchers have been writing related to the Affordable Care Act, the evidence is building that the law has made a real positive impact on coverage and then access to care for millions of Americans. Uh, so the estimates are that over 20 million Americans have gained insurance uh, under the Affordable Care Act through a combination of Medicaid and, and private insurance offered through these marketplaces. And not only is it coverage, it, it translates into benefits that we've s- shown uh, increased access to primary care. More people say they can get uh, prescription medications that they need. Um, we also see that people are better able to afford care, and not putting things off, and, and are even starting to, re- to report trends moving in the right direction of feeling better about their overall health. Uh, we also did some work where we assessed whether it matters the type of coverage someone gets. and uh, in, in work with Bob and others here at Harvard, we assessed uh, states that were giving people Medicaid uh, versus a, a more experimental approach in Arkansas and other states where they used Medicaid money to buy people private insurance. Uh, and what we found was that both models were really effective at getting people's care more affordable, um, at helping people with chronic conditions get regular care for those, for those diseases, um, for getting people into primary care and better access to, to medications. And it actually turned out not to matter. So much whether it was private or public. The big difference was, did you have any coverage at all? And there are just big benefits from going from uninsured to having coverage. Now, that said, there are these remaining barriers and remaining disparities. And uh, they're there whether you look by income, um, and you compare lower or higher income families, or lower income, higher income uh, areas of a state. And they're also there when you look by race and ethnicity. We have long-standing disparities based on race and ethnicity. And in some of the work that, that I uh, participated in before the ACA, uh, we looked and found giving people coverage actually improves survival. Um, In Massachusetts, uh, in the 2006 health reform that became the model for the ACA, and also in some large Medicaid expansions in states in the early 2000s, we found getting coverage reduced mortality rates at a population level. And interestingly, did so to a greater extent for groups that had traditionally had worse uh, outcomes, so greater gains in survival for racial and ethnic minorities and for people in lower income uh, areas. But as Bob said, that gap doesn't close entirely. And in fact, our estimates suggest that maybe you can close 20 30 40% of those gaps in survival by, giving, uh, by creating universal coverage, especially for lower income populations. But that means there's a big gap left that uh, is a bi- is, really needs to be a focus of public health work mm-hmm. to try to improve how we provide care and ultimately the health outcomes that people in these communities experience.
1: Well, thank you. Then let's turn to Kathy Hempstead. Uh, There are various estimates out there. Ben said $20 had gained uh, coverage under the ACA, either through Medicaid or through uh, the private insurance uh, exchanges. Uh, And there's a consensus that about 10% remain uninsured. Mm -hmm. Um, What do we need to do to get those 10% insured, if universal access is the goal?
7: Well, uh, I want to just take a minute and tell a little bit more of the tale of progress and sort of some of the the good news that's occurred because I think the things that that Ben said were were right on. We have made so many strides in expanding coverage to lots and lots of people in this country in the last few years, and you know. Health insurance is is the way that we get financial access to health care in this country, both for everyday use of health care, but also for protection against catastrophic events. And I think both of those themes came up in that video, which I thought was was really effective. And I just wanted to note that today there was a great study that was released that looked at the trend in consumer debt for very low-income Americans and compared states that had expanded Medicaid to states that hadn't, and noticed that there was a real reduction in, in medical debt in states where they had expanded Medicaid. So, I think that we're making really impressive gains there as well. And I think that's a really important aspect of health insurance that we sometimes overlook, but that it's such a a good stepping stone to making further economic progress for low income people if they're not saddled with all that debt. And so many of the access measures are moving in the right direction. But, you know, getting to the the challenges, you know, we're now at a place where approximately 75% of the remaining uninsured are eligible for something. Which is, you know, attributable to lots of the progress that we've made in extending these opportunities through the ACA. But there is this challenge in getting those people on board. Um, we did some work with uh, some focus groups of people who had sat on the sidelines during the Affordable Care Act and talked to some of the remaining uninsured, most of whom are, you know, low income. It was a mix, but primarily low income people who many times were eligible for subsidized coverage, and, and asked them. You know why are they why are they sitting out? Why are they not taking advantage of the opportunities? And we found, um, you know, this won't surprise anyone, but the, the the leading reason had to do with affordability and sort of the perceived value of the coverage. And we found that this group of people had very very low savings rate. They had a lot of consumer debt. They had a lot of demands for every dollar that they had, whether it was to fix a car, repair something in their house, and they you know, weren't able to put a health insurance premium to the top of that list. You know, we found that people tended to have kind of other workaround ways that they got everyday access to health care, whether it was through the safety net or retail clinics. And you know, by and large, didn't have big health care needs, and were kind of rolling the dice on some of the more sort of catastrophic things that might come up, and I think it's, it's important that we work together to try to think about ways to get those remaining people into health insurance, because it will benefit them. And it's also good for the risk pool, because you know, they have, you know, in general, lower use. And I think that can result in making the product more affordable for everyone. So I think that's really the challenge now.
1: So even with (laughs) subsidies, people still can't afford health insurance or don't perceive they can afford health insurance.
7: Yeah, and going back to something that Bob mentioned, then lots of times people that are really on the brink can maybe afford to pay their premium, but then they're not necessarily able to get the benefit of of the health insurance and actually do the cost sharing that they need to do to to use the health care services. That would really benefit them. So that's another aspect of. You know, plan designs and how they you know don't work as well when they require a lot of cost sharing for really low income people. And there are subsidies to address that, but it's it's not easy for everybody.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Jackie Jenkins Scott, um, you've dealt a lot with the barriers to health care um, in your work at the Demick Community Health Center here in Boston. I've been we're there for twenty years. Um, you've seen that it's. Um, more about getting just just getting insurance, but also um, some of the social factors involved uh, in in getting people into the system, like Kathy sure. just said. Sure, can you talk and, about that? And
5: one of the things that both Kathy and and Ben talked about in terms of access is uh, is something as simple as copays. Uh, for low-income families, if they're working two, three jobs, um, fifteen or twenty dollars for a copay. Um, could create a huge barrier for them. And and what happens is that they end up going to multiple sites to get their care. And that care then is not consistent and and creates problems for the providers in in terms of tracking and following, particularly uh, patients with um, chronic diseases. Uh, And we look at conditions such as housing conditions, which also creates um, this uh, ability or inability for people to have long-term stability in their lives. So they're moving from one neighborhood to another neighborhood, one community to another community, and then it's figuring out how to access care, even if they have Insurance. Uh, It's uh, those are some of the barriers, and just getting
1: transportation.
5: Transportation. um, And Ben talked, you know, alluded to the issues of of, um, uh, disparities in race, race, and ethnicity. Um, Those are huge barriers that we have to overcome. Uh, Patients still uh, experience these disparities, uh, don't understand them, uh, and then have to. To address them in their healthcare settings. Uh, So we have a lot of work to do with uh, with professional development for our for our clinicians and our providers, as well as education for patients. Um, So those are are, uh, serious barriers that have nothing to do with the ability um, uh, to have insurance.
1: So it's more than just having an insurance card. Absolutely. I see. Uh, well, we've heard about uh, some of the challenges here. Um, we have a, another video clip here uh, from, um, uh, from the Dimmick Community Health Center. Uh, Jackie was talking about how a 9 to 5 um, uh, regimen and doctor's offices, that they're only open 9 to 5, uh, is part of the problem. Uh, let's take a look at some of the stories now uh, that, that the Demick Center has seen over the years, if we could roll that tape.
5: I grew up in the Roxbury community. Over the years, I've grown with Dimmick. My mother brought me to Dimmick when I was two years old. I've been a patient here since then. I have a son, and he's five years old. And my son goes to Head Start, and I also go to the GD program here. I want my son to know that I want to be an EMT, so you have to study for what you want in life. And they helped me put that knowledge into my son that you have to work for it.
4: I have a long history of drug,
0: drug use. I've attempted and tried many times to stop using on my own. Um, I, was, I was broken inside. I felt many a times to uh, give in. You know, my mom spoke highly of Demic. My first day here, I know I was in the right place.
1: So as we can see there, it's more than just about medical care. People need a whole range of services to help them get back into a, a normal, healthy life. Um, tell us more, Jackie, if you would, about community health centers. I think a lot of people don't quite understand where they where they fit in the whole healthcare system and, and what they do and how they serve uh, this role in in very basic primary health. Community
5: health centers are such an important structural part of the health care system. And, and through the Affordable Care Act, we had a great expansion. They're about 50 years old, uh, serving now 29 million Americans hmm. uh, in 9,000 sites uh, around the country. And one of the um, great things about community health centers is that they are located in neighborhoods. They are um, they're, uh, mostly nonprofits, uh, and the um, the patients or the consumers have some say in the governance of those organizations. So they really are designed to be responsive and reflective of the needs of the of the individual communities that they're serving. Many community health centers now, and, and, and to Bob's point, offer urgent care, um, evening uh, and weekend hours for primary care. Um, and all of that is in trying to be responsive to the needs of the, of the residents and the neighborhoods that they serve because they're located in those neighborhoods. Um, so that's one of the joys of community health centers that they really, um, unlike large corporate uh, entities coming into a neighborhood, these health centers have been in these neighborhoods for decades, for many, many years. And uh, they've been under resourced. That has been one of the major problems that community health centers have had. We haven't had enough resources to really provide the care and meet the needs of the communities um, that are um, service that they that they serve. So as um, and even more, with
1: the ACA expansion, is that still is resourcing still a problem? That is that is
5: helping tremendously mm-hmm. because uh, community health centers are getting. Uh, better reimbursements for the services that they provide. And more and more, uh, both the government and um, the private philanthropic communities are understanding that health care is more than just the the primary physical health care. We have to be responsive to all of the other needs that we've kind of talked about. Um, And community health centers provide that comprehensive look at the complexity of the lives of, of all of us, we all live very complex lives. And if we think about our own lives, uh, think about the lives of our patients, um, and the complexity of their lives—working two or three jobs, dropping children off—all of the things that that uh, stresses that we find that impact our health. And community health centers are designed to try to make um, it easier. Make it easier.
1: Yeah. Uh, Bob, uh, one of the things that we saw in the polls um, um, was that urgent care is being taken up by more people, and we know that it's booming out there in the country. Uh, Jackie just mentioned urgent care at community health centers. How, how can urgent care fill some of the gaps that we see in the health care system?
2: Joe, I think the big thing is we actually found something that, along with Jackie, I think we have to give some voice to people's experiences. Uh, What it's turning out, there are a very large number of people, including middle-income people, whose lives do not allow them to go see a physician on a two-week appointment system. Uh, They work. They have evening issues. They're picking up kids. And so uh, people are offering an urgent care service, the freestanding. It is the fastest growing thing in the United States. And it's filled. Uh, with uh, middle-income people who say to you, I, I, it's great I can get an appointment in two weeks, or it's the one hour I can't because I'm dropping the kids off. And we have a healthcare system that has not adjusted to the fact that people have lives that don't fit those appointments. It turns out it's much worse if you're low-income in America. That is, you're struggling to put all these other things together, and then basically, I need it at 6.30, or I could get there early in the morning, and the only place that will take you is an emergency room. So uh, essentially, the development of services, and what happens is, if you don't have a community health center, there is no generally urgent care program in a lot of communities that suddenly got insurance coverage. But what's really, if you step back, so many people talk about, oh, they just go to the emergency room because they're they're not sensible. They're just going to their physician. No, the system that we interview people about doesn't realize that people have hours and weekends that they can't go, and they need care. And so if we're really going to make lives work better, we need resources where they are there. And it has to be uh, building off community health centers, the urgent care. But the critical thing is you can get your care around the life that you're now forced to, to lead, not on an appointment system For it. And what was striking is uh, Joe's reporters kept wanting to say this is only a low income phenomenon. No, it's a phenomenon of middle income people, but it's a lot worse among low income communities that they can't make their lives work to when somebody offers you an appointment. And that's the resources we have to think about here. People have a right to have, when they need care in their lives, a way that a system responds to that. And it was so dramatic. So these things are the fastest growing thing in healthcare, but they're responding. To what's happening to people's lives? So, would
1: having uh, uh, does me- I, let me ask a question? Um, d- 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 does Medicaid cover urgent care in most states? I don't actually know the answer to that question.
7: I think a lot of times it doesn't. It doesn't because you know the rates aren't high enough. They're I not mean, high enough
2: because you know. and yeah. so even if technically they do, they don't accept people, and some of them have very big copays, but the which keeps people out of using them.
7: But yeah, and even urgent care centers that are run by hospitals, you know, are still telling people you have to go to the hospital. We don't take Medicaid here. I mean, I know that's true in lots of states, but I think the the whole industry is is changing so much. I think to reflect some of the pressures that you're talking about, and you can see a lot of the new entrants into the individual market. You know, the kind of new business models that are that are coming up are really. Based on much more of a kind of service sector retail orientation to, you know, make things convenient for people, like the the Zoom chain from the Northwest, really is based on a string of urgent care centers. So I, I think there are just these huge revolutions going on right now and how people are being offered access to healthcare, you know, throughout the income spectrum. But I think it's important for but everybody. if
2: they showed up. More in the world that Jackie was just talking about, uh, more center sites, we would see some of the barriers, I believe, go down uh, uh, for that. People whose lives need it, maybe in places that urgent care doesn't think is an exciting mm-hmm. place to open a new. Uh, new facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the point I've gotten very uh, uh, strong on, uh, we, we have taken the term called convenience care. And when you do in the back of your mind, you say it's a trivial thing. It'd be easier to just do this. In reality, people have lives where convenience is about whether or not they can get care or not. It's just not. It's a little easier Saturday morning to stop off here. And it's important to realize that people were reporting, I think, with the cards they have, can find places that will see them out of that emergency room uh, for things that are really important in their lives. And we have to think about how that gets there uh in the future because i think an awful lot of people are trying to tell us that in this survey that they have problems that cannot be met through the more conventional way uh, healthcare is set up
1: yeah and to step back just w- one step further well, one reason we're talking about the emergency rooms being such a problem is because they're so expensive and urgent care centers tend to be somewhat lower cost and for the healthcare system as a whole the, the goal has to be to, to save on costs so that we can expand the pool of So, just the who can one thing
2: it. with Joe, uh, in the back of my mind, he said, Well, it is too expensive to save money. But I think it's outrageous that people who go there are telling you that care is awful. And it's the only place they can go and it's the most expensive. The place. emergency room, Yes, Yes. Yeah. So, uh, there just is a, a sort of obvious thing. We need an alternative for people fitting their lives that isn't an emergency room. That's right.
6: I wanna toss a couple thoughts out on this. Sure. That I, I think it's um it's absolutely a, you know, this a real problem that, that Bob's describing from the survey data that that are that's become you know very clear in the voices of the respondents that access and timeliness are, are real issues and not, not just a trivial question of convenience but but fundamental issue of access. I think that the proper policy solution is less clear. Uh, we are seeing this increase in these urgent care centers. The evidence yet that this is particularly effective care is mixed. Right. Um, there's some evidence that people are using more urgent care, but it actually doesn't offset what they do elsewhere, that they essentially are taking advantage of this opportunity to get care that they want, but it doesn't necessarily produce savings. And there's also a great deal of focus on the emergency department, but it is at most five to ten percent of healthcare spending, um, you could drive down all the emergency room spending, and you haven't fixed the cost problem in the U.S. healthcare system. And I think sometimes that perspective is is um, is lacking. But other approaches that are also worth considering are improvements to the way we deliver primary care. Um, And Jackie talked about what uh, some of the qualified health centers do. Um, I work at a community health center. We offer evening hours. We have a Saturday clinic. We always have an on-call physician who's available for, you know, page in the middle of the night and can give patients some advice. A lot of times I'm paged at at midnight and and the question I get from a patient is, do I need to go to the emergency department? I don't want to, but I need to talk to a doctor to find out if this is something that can wait till the morning. And so providing more comprehensive care that isn't limited to -to face-to-face appointments nine to five Mm -hmm. is really valuable. And things like the patient center medical home and community health center models are promising and may, may be uh, just as important, if not more important, than some of the, um, the pop up clinics that, that are, are, are certainly proliferating. But I think the evidence is still out as to how good or bad a thing this is for, for overall healthcare care access.
5: Kathy? And Certainly, you know, we have to think about consistency and having a, a medical home for a patient where the providers really get to know that patient and that patient's family. And um, one of the, the beauties about community health centers is that they have followed patients for decades, as, as we saw in the short video. Uh, we shouldn't underestimate the importance and the value of that um, in terms of really reducing long-term um, health care costs and, and problems for, for patients and their families.
7: I would just throw out that, you know, yeah, I think that's a really good point that Ben made is when you lower barriers to access in a way, if people use it as more of a compliment than a substitute, you can end up... Sort of increasing utilization and and increasing costs. And I think there's a a great value to having places where there's a lot of coordination of services like the community health centers that that Jackie talked about or this comprehensive primary care clinic. But I I also think there are many, many different kinds of healthcare consumers with different tastes. And some of them will want something very transactional and very quick. And I think, uh, you know, retail clinics are good for them. Other people, would benefit from more integration and the patient centered medical home is great for some people a waste for other people so i think you know we're always going to need to have a lot of different models if we want to serve people in the most efficient way possible
1: so stepping back now the the ACA the first 2 years of the ACA have have uh, come and gone. Uh, where, where should the focus be? Let's assume that the ACA will continue. Um, stipulate that and not get into the political discussion. But uh, where, where should the effort be to improve the quality, like Bob was talking about, where low-income people have much lower quality of care? Should it really the focus be on the getting the rest of the ten percent uh, covered, or where, where would each of you put the? Um, Uh, put the emphasis in, say, the next couple of years.
6: Well if I were uh, to pick one single policy, and, and unfortunately I don't think we can avoid politics because no. we're talking health care, um, but uh, it would be the, the issue of Medicaid expansion. Right? We still have nearly 20 states that have chosen to not expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act and, and essentially leaving three to four million low-income adults in, in these states, which are all, many of them are some of the poorest states in the country with the highest uninsured rates. And essentially those, those several million uh, Americans have no option for affordable health care. They can't get Medicaid, they can't go in the marketplace and buy coverage. Uh, And they are uh, essentially left out in the cold, and uh, that is just a a, you know both as a moral issue and as a policy and a public health. Uh, perspective it, is deeply concerning it, it worsens the disparities we already have we have health o- care options now for middle and higher income families we have it for uh, lower-income families in certain states but uh, in, in some of these states that have the greatest need uh, that's where people uh, have the the remaining largest barriers and, and so I would start there and get four million of the most vulnerable yep. uh, members of our society uh, the option of, of health care like we saw in the video that can make such a real difference mm-hmm. and Kathy?
7: yeah and I would I would really focus on the the remaining uninsured who are eligible but currently unenrolled and I think you know financial access to health care it may not be all you need but it certainly is is necessary. It's something that you need. And I think it's it's really, really important that the individual marketplace created by the ACA be viable and grow and become more affordable. So I think there are a lot of potential policy solutions that could be brought to bear to try to increase the affordability and the take up and I think there are also things that you know the the carrier side is trying and can try to to put a product before people that seems more valuable to them, and I think also people are kind of adjusting. And you know it's a new ideology to sort of you know really have health insurance and buy it for yourself. So I think the market needs a little bit more time and some you know maybe some policy interventions to grow and and thrive. But I think that that's just a fundamental thing that we all should prioritize.
1: Right. And now we've seen just in in this week that United Healthcare is pulling out of several markets um, so that the insurance industry is going through this whole churn of, of whether they will be able to offer. And, and many people are being left with only one or two options on the insurance exchanges when it comes to the insurance company. So uh, do you have a view on this, this lessening of competition on the exchanges? Is this a good thing or a bad thing?
7: Well, I do think there is a lot of reinvention going on by the carriers. I mean, I think that to me it was very significant that United decided to keep its Harkin product in the Georgia market, which is kind of a, a new style approach that is much more, you know, integration of providers and payers and these clinics where there's no cost sharing if you, you know, get care in these in these clinics and they you know, they have a lot of attributes that remind me a little bit of the community health centers. They, you know, they have a much more retail kind of appearance. But they're but funded
1: through private, the private insurance exchange.
7: Yeah, you know. absolutely. But I think that, I think that the carriers are learning that just taking their employer-sponsored insurance product and trying to sell it directly to consumers is not bringing in everybody that they want to bring into the market. So, so I do think that there is a lot of. Uh, Transformation going on in the market, and I'm I'm hoping that it's going to result in a set of products that are going to bring more people into the market because that's what's really needed. So I don't think that news is is all bad. I'd like to think of it more as kind of a reinvention, you know, and maybe the beginning of a new stage where we see a lot of innovative, new kinds of health insurance products being put out there.
1: And our new policies. I mean, do you think that will cause some action by legislatures or or the Congress?
7: Well, I think there's been a lot of. uh, th- a lot of points have been raised about the importance of maybe regulating special enrollment periods more tightly and doing more to ensure that there's a little bit more continuity in terms of you know the the enrollment issue. And I think that's something CMS is taking very seriously and has responded to. I think there are, there are other things that can be done, and I think there are ways that states could experiment. You know, if if they were given a little freer rein with some of the waivers
5: that are potentially out there.
1: Mm-hmm. Jackie, do you have thoughts on this?
5: Well, I agree with both um, Ben and Kathy. Um, And and once we get beyond uh, particularly the affordability issues for our lowest income people who are insured, I think that we we have to really start thinking about better coordination and better support Mm -hmm. uh, for comprehensive care beyond that so that we can keep you know, move more towards prevention and keeping people out of the health system um, as a whole is certainly in, in our highest cost uh, parts of the health system. So, but that's you know coming down the road. Um, okay. If we can make sure that um, we can expand so that everybody has access to care, that's uh, certainly our should be our number one priority. And
2: I want to turn to questions in a moment, but Bob, I think you have a comment. Uh, Yes. Uh, So uh, when you look at the survey data, uh, there's a a policy that's rarely discussed anymore that would incredibly help people. In the first two years of the ACA, uh, Congress required, the law required, that Medicaid paid doctors at the same rate as Medicare. That was never renewed after two years. And so uh, it isn't. And so uh, many, including uh, Massachusetts, has dropped the rates of what they're paying. And so when we're interviewing people who have a card who can't get something, part of it has to do, it's like urgent care. Why shouldn't my card get me seen in an urgent care center? If I go to this private group, why won't they see me? They won't see me because the rates are substantially lower. So we have to reach a point that if we just keep adding Medicaid and it cannot get you into a whole series of resources, we're still going to be reporting people who say they can't find care in their emergency rooms for it. And this is actually a policy decision. Congress did not renew the two-year extension uh, of the Medicaid match for, for primary care. And that would also affect the financial side of uh, community health centers. They would get higher level payments, as they did. But when you, people tell you they have insurance and they can't get care, part of it is people won't take that card. And we don't realize, and that's what the conservatives often argue, well, it doesn't get the same uh, uh, take up. It doesn't because it doesn't pay the same. But equity requires that when I show up with a card, people don't turn me down because I have that card. And that's an issue, I think, if we want to have this picture look differently, has to be dealt with, as well as expanding more people who have a Medicaid card.
1: All right. Um, Lisa Merowitz is here now to uh, the, help me field the questions. And I think we have a question from online first.
0: Right, we do. We have a couple of questions. And a number of them are about the community health center model. Um, so I'll take this one. What is the potential for community health centers to become more like medical homes where Americans with low incomes can receive more comprehensive care? Has the ACA opened up more opportunities for centers to function in this way and increase capacity?
1: I think we've addressed that a little bit. But we go did ahead. talk a
0: little yes, bit about it. Uh, yes,
5: the ACA has. Uh, The number of community health centers have expanded, and the the number of people accessing community health centers have expanded. We still have a long way to go. And uh, Bob is absolutely right. If we don't have the resources there to provide the comprehensive, high-quality care, um, then that's an issue. And the rates um, are, are very, very important.
0: And are there any other issues around that that you would like to emphasize?
5: Well, I think that's um, the main thing. That's the biggest one, right. would you say, Ben? <laughs> one of the biggest, uh, one I of mean, the
6: largest. I, you know, one of the, the challenges is that you know when you think about, as someone who works at a community health center, I obviously think uh, very highly of them, and uh, is that it, you know it's it's hard to to r- rapidly ramp up the number of community health centers, right? You have to build them. And um, you know, 29 million is a huge footprint in, in terms of providing care to vulnerable populations. But when we talk about you know, a program like Medicaid, there's 70 million people in Medicaid, and we're talking another 30 million who are uninsured. So the bulk of care to low-income people actually gets provided by private practice providers, by uh, you know, private practice physicians, by private hospitals. You know, safety net providers play a key role in certain communities and provide disproportionate amounts of that care. But fundamentally, we still have a largely private provision of health care, and that's true if you're low income as well. And while I think the issues Bob raises are are absolutely important to think about these payment rates, at the same time, we know from all the studies of previous expansions of Medicaid, despite that disparity in in the number of doctors taking Medicaid, when you give people that card, they do get better access. They do find themselves more likely to to have a primary care provider. They do get more medications. Um, And you know there, there actually seem to be some potential disparities left on the specialty side that weren't addressed in the ACA. But overall, um, okay. you know, the gap between private and, and Medicaid is not is not trivial, but the gap between those and not having any coverage is down here. And so we have to keep that in perspective. And I think sometimes for political reasons there's a nihilistic argument that goes Medicaid may not be quite as good, so we shouldn't do it at all. And I think that yeah. does a gross disservice yeah, right. to millions of people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's a
0: great point. Thank you. From online? Um, We've had some questions about mini-clinics. What do you think about the role and impact of mini-clinics in drugstores as a way for low-income Americans to access care? Is there any data on how they are used by various income groups and how people rate the quality of care?
2: So we, we asked about both. And uh, there are a couple of studies. And our, our findings aren't identical to the study. So the, the majority of people in our survey who use many clinics, number one is, is immunizations okay. uh, uh, for this. So I saw a recent study, and they barely mentioned that immunizations were important. And that is a, a really big issue. And then it's, it's various treatments, minor illnesses, uh, school, uh, various uh, school, school exams school yeah. exams for it it's pretty low key in, in terms of what it is, uh, but at convenience is number one and, and again, compared to emergency rooms, uh, many <laughs> clinics in our survey are A plus i 'm not going <laughs> to argue that people loved it, uh, but the ratings are dramatically higher. Uh, uh, for that. But the fastest growing thing, it's just that we see it when go go to Walgreens or CVS or something, are these urgent care centers. Whether they are, are they were the most growing thing uh, for that. But there is an absolute uh, 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 growth side. And a, a point that Kathy made. If you do a lot of surveys of, of people, and when you're in the professional side, it's hard to say this, people have different needs. So not everybody's actually going to select the medical home. I'm sorry. Uh, they don't see the need for all the surrounding continuity. They have a problem with their child or life, or, and they want some place that can be seen, and it's in conjunction with what they're doing. So we're likely to see a, a lot of different lifestyles about how people use healthcare. At one end, I want 10 years of being followed. Mm-hmm. At the other, I want to get my three kids uh, a, a, a vaccine, and one of them has some minor problem, and I'd like to get them seen.
7: And the same person yeah. could at different times want, right. m- want both. You know? I, I don't think there's one way to deliver health care.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a different stage of life, where yeah. you, what your health condition is.
0: Do we have any audience oh. questions? Any questions? If we don't, I'll continue with the questions from online. There's oh. one in the front.
3: Thank you. Um, so we have talked about how important health insurance is, and there's clearly a lot of work to be done in terms of improving the coverage rate for low-income adults in the United States. But if we know that in getting people covered by insurance, whether public or private, still doesn't narrow the mortality gap, I guess I'm wondering, what is the next frontier? When we know that so much of the disparity between whether people die prematurely um, because of their income, even though they live next to each other, they live in the same city or the same county or the same state, isn't necessarily um, completely solved by insurance coverage, what next?
1: Wants to take a stab at that. <laughs> I can start. Okay. Uh, it,
6: it's it's a great question, and and I think the the wording is important. I think you hit on it, which is that that insurance does matter, but it doesn't fix the majority of the gap. And so you know, so first off, why do we spend so much time then talking about coverage? Why do we have a panel that we're you know doing a lot of this? And why do I spend most of my career working on it? Well, I think part of it is is as politically contentious uh, and as difficult as the process around the Affordable Care Act has been. Giving people coverage is actually pretty simple as a policy matter. It's fairly straightforward to expand eligibility for a program, uh, to give people the option of buying uh, tax credits to buy insurance. The other seventy to eighty percent of these disparities are much more difficult to tackle. Uh, they're things like uh, environmental health, they're poor housing, their institutional racism and discrimination, their stigma of public versus private programs, um, and a whole host of issues related to culture and, and behaviors that are um, really difficult to tackle from a policy perspective. So that's not to excuse it and say we don't need to, but you start with the low-hanging fruit and then you build on that and say now what's next. And you're you, it's very hard um, as a as a as a primary care doctor, it's these are the, the things that take much, much more time and effort and building relationships to try to tackle and take a lot of advocacy that leaves the realm of healthcare and gets into things like education and criminal justice reform and immigration reform, where building that consensus is often even more challenging than it's mm-hmm. been with the ACA. So uh, my answer is to not to, to, to say you're raising the exact right questions. I don't I know what the areas that we need to go at are, but I don't have the, the formula for doing it. Um, I wish I did, um, but I would love to hear what some of the other panelists. Think of how you tackle some of that remaining 70, 80 percent, because it is it is uh, quite daunting. I, I think
5: that accessibility and access gives opportunity. It gives opportunity for greater knowledge and learning and training. So if you never see a patient of color, and if now this patient of color has insurance, it has access, then Ben, as a physician, is going to hopefully <laughs> learn a lot. He's, you know, going to have a different perception of what it is to deal with this patient, to treat this patient, his or her family. So I think, you know, tackling this issue of access opens the door for us to look at all the other issues, and so much of it has to do with with our own training, our own personal biases, and and all the things that we have to overcome as a, a complex human being that we all are, and the more we have opportunity, I think, the greater our chance as a society to deal with some of these issues to address them.
7: I would just add you know to the extent to which so many disparities in health have to do with income inequality, expanding coverage is an important way of redistributing income to a certain extent i mean it doesn't doesn't completely do the job, but it, it really has a big impact on people 's sort of you know financial health and their you know lack of exposure to debt then so it can make an important contribution that way and also i think you know to the extent to which getting into contact with the healthcare system can give people opportunities to learn more about ways that they can stay healthy and have some of the conversations that Jackie's talking about i think it's it's an important component of a way to address that but it's
6: certainly not the only thing
1: yeah that connection to the health system to just get in the door and learn more about how to be healthy very important.
6: And coverage is a powerful leverage for other policy approaches. So we see the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services now in- are encouraging programs that look at social uh, determinants of health and programs that, that go beyond just whether or not you can see a provider, but look at things like housing, look at things like uh, you know food insecurity, um, and transitions between homelessness or uh, from the criminal justice system back into the community. So these are programs that um, by having the funding mechanism in place through Medicaid and, and other health insurance programs, now policymakers can broaden that lens and say we have to be more comprehensive in how we think about improving um, the health for for uh, populations that have traditionally suffered from these disparities.
2: Bob, uh, so uh, just taking uh, Ben's point, so many of these other areas will be very politically controversial. So looking at the evidence, the one where I personally would focus on has to do with public education. People may not realize this, but the gaps have actually widened in this country for low income. Uh, youngsters, with their families. And much of what gives people the skills to make judgments about food they eat and exercise and comes out of an educational system. And the gaps are really wide. And the reason why I focus on that is at least on the surface, we actually have an agreement as a country to do something about public education. It's the one thing where actually almost every state constitution says youngsters should be treated the same regardless of their income. But every data shows they're absolutely not. Failure, offering, buildings, what's there, uh, teaching ratios are, are all very different. So if I had to put a dollar Uh, into something else beyond this, it would be trying to raise the educational levels. Because that allows you to enter into income, the job streams, and on the health side, to be able to make more sensible choices uh, for that. But Ben's point is very, very key. Uh, With all the controversies about the ACA, it is easier to give people a card. Uh, Than it is to how we're going to solve these other problems. But some of these will be the big contributors to whether or not people really have uh, much lower disparity death rates than we see today. All right. Um, Well, um,
1: I think uh, it's almost time for us to close. And I I just want to give each of you a a chance to offer a final thought um, and allow each of you to give us one policy takeaway that you would like the audience, uh, both here in the studio and Online to, to take away from it. So I will um, give Bob,
2: you the first chance. Uh, th- so uh, uh, basically, Ben's correct, but we have to invest in the structure of community health centers or other alternatives in neighborhoods where people actually live. And so insurance, uh, it will not be enough to address these problems. It takes an investment, and we have to bring physicians and nurses into locations where where they aren't. This invisible market for people has not been fair to them. They live in areas uh, where it's very hard to get care. So that would be my one thing, is having money for investing in developing things over the next 10 years that are available to people. All right, Ben let's we'll go down
6: the road. Yeah, I'd say that uh complicated pr- uh, policies and complicated laws like the Affordable Care Act, like the Medicaid program, um, almost always can benefit from improvement. Always have challenges and 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 issues that um, that that make uh them not as effective as they could be. But you always have to ask compared to what. And I think the video we started with makes abundantly clear Mm -hmm. how much that coverage that went to uh, 20 million people so far under the Affordable Care Act has mattered and how much Medicaid's improved the lives of the 70 million people who have it. And we should never lose track of that um, and think that we can just throw our hands up and wipe it away and not cause uh, huge devastation to many people's lives. Let's see. Kathy?
7: I would, you know, just kind of. Hone in on a little aspect of that and, and totally agree with, with what Ben said about the ACA. And just, you know, I really think it's important that we all commit to making the non group market thrive and be, be successful and be affordable and really be an option for low income people. I think it's a tremendous asset for our country. And I think that government, carriers, people all need to recognize that it's, you know, everyone needs to make adjustments and try to really make that market grow and
5: work. Well, Jackie. My colleagues have really said it all. I guess (laughs) I I would conclude that I I think we need patience as a nation. We really, very Mm -hmm. often, we want the solutions immediately. And if they're not there immediately the next election, we throw it out and come in with someone new. Mm -hmm. So I think something new. And I I think that we really have to give this. When you think about it, it's only been a few years. And we have made tremendous accomplishment. We're not where we need to be. We have a long way to go. But I, I would hope that we would give it some time and give the give us all the opportunity both to learn and grow and to tackle the big issues, the the really hard issues that will create the long term systemic changes that we need, and that is going to require patience.
1: Well thank you. Um, I want to thank all of our panelists here and everyone in our studio audience and online for joining us today. You can continue the conversation online at the forum website. That's forumhsph.org. And you'll want to tune into the next forum, uh, which happens on Monday, April 25th at 1230 Eastern Time. That will be about public health perspectives on building resilience in an age of terrorism.
2: Light subject.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.